Please be seated. This is the time where we pray just for a few brief moments about the world around us and what's going on. So would you all bow your heads? Father God, yesterday we celebrated Australia Day and we thank you for our country. And today we celebrate the dedication of these little children to a Christian upbringing. And we thank you for all who have committed themselves to this process. Father, we saw that many of those people who were nominated for Australian of the Year awards had a focus on children, on their welfare, and on the difficult path many children endure on their journey into adulthood. We pray you will continue to bless those worthy Australians in their endeavours, whether they won awards or not. And Father, we pray that in Australia we can let our kids be kids. We pray that they can develop that sense of exploration, of adventure, of risk-taking, of persevering in hard times, and of looking after others. All of these things on which our country has been built and prospered, let these children develop these same characteristics in their childhood that they will need for their life as adults. And Father, we pray for protection for all young children in their innocence and their vulnerability. Father, we also pray for our country and our people in the year ahead. We pray for unity in this country, not division. We pray for purpose and not popularity. We pray for more kindness and compassion and less hard-heartedness towards those who are different from us. We pray for openness and relationship, not division into minorities. We pray for humility and success, not arrogance. We pray for grace in failure and the determination to try again and do better. We pray for responsibility and accountability when things go wrong and not blaming everybody else. We pray for openness to new ideas and we pray for holding on to values and traditions that have served us well. Above all, Lord, we pray for revival in this country. Lord, we pray and pray and pray for revival in our country, Australia, in our cities, in our towns and suburbs, in our communities, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces and schools, and in our families. And we pray for your leading and your guidance for this church and for every individual member of this church so that we can serve you as you purpose in extending your kingdom in this place and at this time. And we ask these things this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's my uh, pleasure to once again uh, welcome Steve Sherman, uh, to, who is with us this morning. And uh, we're looking forward to Steve bringing the word to us. So over to you, Steve. Yes, that's better. It was my fault. Not unexpected, really, is it? 
when I was in uh, primary school, I remember a, a note coming home. I had to take a note home with me. And uh, I was probably about well, year four, I think. I don't know. Yeah, somewhere around then. And the note had a, had a thing on it saying that we had to buy a sports uniform. This was sort of a, a newish thing, I think, in schools back when I was. This is the 1970s. So, you know, uh, had to buy special clothes for sports. And we had to get a blue T-shirt, light blue. That was the colour of my school, light blue. And then it just said, and sports shorts. That's all it said. And I was quite excited by this because I knew that that meant football shorts. <laughs> Particularly that I would be able to get a pair of Glenelg Football Club football shorts. I didn't care if they were the black ones with the yellow on the sides or the white ones with the black and yellow. It didn't matter. I was getting Glenelg football shorts. It was very exciting. Um, some of my friends already had these things. Now, I used to live in Glenelg, so it made sense. A lot of us, a lot of my friends had these shorts. And finally, I, mum had to buy me some because that's what it said. We needed sports shorts. My mum wasn't of the same thought as me. Um, my mum loved to find a bargain. I see some old friends nodding. They knew her well. Um, and uh, so mum was armed with this information and went off to buy some shorts. And she came back really, really excited that she found, she bought a whole pile of shorts. Thought, well, what does this mean? And here I am waiting expectantly for my Glenelg football shorts. But they were not Glenelg football shorts. Um, I've got a picture I'm gonna show you in a moment of shorts that are not my shorts because I searched the internet for shorts like my shorts, but the internet refused. Um, <laughs> so, can we show it? Thanks, Leah. Um, now, can I say, I wish these were my shorts. <laughs> They're not good for any self-respecting kid of, I don't know, 10 or whatever, eight, nine or 10, whatever it was. They're not good. But my shorts actually were shorter than those shorts. <laughs> Quite a bit shorter. And Here's the killer. They weren't a nice flat red. They had some reddish color on them. What they were, they were shorts with sort of green plant life all over it. <laughs> and massive hibiscus flowers. <laughs> My mum was so excited and I was devastated. I was mortally embarrassed. I had to go to school in these things. I was definitely the only one with those shorts in the school. <laughs> Quite often as a kid you grow up, you know, and parents do embarrass you, don't they? And that, I think it's a job of a parent. I'm sure I've done the same to my children in some way, shape or form. I see some rolling eyes right now, so that's true. Um, and, uh, you know, and Learning to deal with embarrassment and shame like that is something we just have to deal with, isn't it? It's just, you know. I have a friend who often uses the line, toughen up princess. And that's really what you've sort of got to do, don't you? you just, yeah, you know, you, they're pretty, those ones are bad enough, you know. But my shorts were shocking, my hibiscus shorts. But I just had to toughen up and wear them. And I remember trying to hide them with my, yeah. 
trying to hide them, but it didn't work. Eventually they had to be seen and I just had to deal with it. So is that the way that God deals with us? Do you think? We're going to look at a story now. Uh, it's very early in the gospel. I can click on if you like. I think I've got the skill. I do. Good. Um, this is from John chapter 2. It's very early in John's gospel. Uh, and I like it for many reasons, but partly just because of the way Jesus treats the people there. So I'll read. It says, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. I'm always a bit perplexed by that little line there. You know, woman, why do you involve me? I sort of feel like Jesus is being cruel. You know, in our language, it would be. In fact, in Greek, it's really interesting. When I read, actually just read it this morning, and it says, what, you, what me you, woman? That's all it says. That's quite bizarre, isn't it? It's an idiom in Greek, meaning why would I have to worry about this stuff? But interestingly is that idea, but my hour has not yet come. I think Mary didn't care about that, did she? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Mm. I find this story interesting for many reasons. I do like that interaction. I, do, I still don't, haven't quite worked out how that interaction with Mary works completely. I've read a lot of stuff on it and people also have different ideas, so I'm all right to have different ideas on it. But when, when we look at things like this, it's good to actually get a bigger view, in a sense. In fact, when I was at, at uh, Bible college, they taught us to look at the big picture. And they said, all right, you've got to look at what is the writer trying to tell his audience? So John, he, wrote, he put this in for a reason. He put it in that bit right at the start of his gospel. He has a little preamble and then he does this story. Uh, uh, why is he doing that? What is that about? The big picture. So we're going to have a look at it. Said, verse 11 said this, said what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So it's got something to do with revealing Jesus' glory. What is his glory? Um, there's a writer that I quite enjoy. His name is Richard Wormbrand. He's died a few years ago. Some of you may know of him. He was a pastor in Romania uh, in the communist, when the communist regime came in and he very much stood against the communist regime and he was in prison for a long time and tortured 
for his beliefs. But he told a story about another person there. That they, now, in, in these times, they used to have meetings that, you had, that everyone had to go to. Had to go to these meetings, and one of the Communist Party would stand up and give a lecture on atheism and why you must be an atheist. And they would disprove things of the Bible. And in this one lecture, uh, this, this Communist Party official had this uh, glass of water and he put it there. And then he said, you know, people talk about Jesus turning water into wine. Well, I can do the same. And he put a couple of drops of this thing in there and it suddenly became like wine. It looked like wine. And everyone was amazed. And he said, see, Jesus is just a trickster. Just all he's doing is tricking you. It's not real. And uh, one Christian there, a young man, stood up and said, Comrade, you have amazed us all with your wisdom and understanding. May I just ask you one thing? Can you take a drink of that? And the man said, No, no, it's poison. I couldn't drink that. He said, that's the difference between you and Jesus. You bring us poison and Jesus has brought us life for 2,000 years. Sadly, he got taken away and beaten for that. But I just love that idea. He has brought us life for 2,000 years. And actually in that is what John is trying to get at here in the bigger picture. That we look at the difference between water and wine. What's water for? It's good to drink, isn't it? It's very useful stuff. Um, I'm very glad we have water. I'm alive for it. I'm mostly water. That's what I am. And I need water to keep myself mostly water. And that's how I stay alive. Um, So water is excellent for life. Uh, But we had a a 21st at my house only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, My eldest daughter, Ashley, was 21. And... um, what do you think would have happened if we just supplied water? <laughs> I don't think people would be too happy, would they? They'd be quite annoyed. Where's the, where's the grog? Where's the, you know, it's 21st. Even at least where's the soft drink? You know, it's got to be something. Yes, that's, pretty, that's right. Where's the soft drink? There's got to be something better than water. So there's a difference, isn't there? Water is good to have. And in fact, often Jesus equates himself with water, in other words, bringing, giving the start of life. But here is much better, isn't it? It's wine. So water is what you need to get by, but wine brings life to the party, doesn't it? And that's the idea. What I love in this story, we see when Jesus uh, changes the water into wine, It's not early in the piece when everyone is nice and sober, is it? It's actually later when they've actually, and the scripture, the way it says it is, when they've had too much to drink, you know. So it's quite fascinating. Jesus brings life to the party. Now, can I say, weddings in those days uh, could go for several days, almost a week. So to run out of wine was bad. In fact, to run out of wine at a wedding, it was people would actually sue if there wasn't enough wine at a wedding. It was like that intense. So, his glory. 
John has actually started this idea already, right at the beginning of his gospel. He has a little line, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and nothing was made. Hang on, I always get tripped up at that bit. Through him nothing was made that has been made. Yeah, it's very confusing. And then he says this, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. That's what he's saying here. In Jesus' life. I know for me, when I was 17 years old and I first had a real experience of Jesus in my life, I was utterly shocked. What I was shocked by, interesting enough, I'd grown up in church and I'd been there and it was, for me, one of the most boring things in my life. There's no problem with the church. It was probably me. I just didn't hear, didn't listen. But it was tedious to me. I would do anything to escape it. I would go and hide on you know, other places. I'd go for a ride on my bike around and say I went to church but didn't. Um, and here I was walking along Anzac Highway uh, about four or five in the morning wondering what the point of life was and I asked and I sort of started thinking about God and I thought, well, what's the point of all of this if you're not real? So I remember saying, if you're real, show yourself. I was frustrated. And suddenly, bam. I was so shocked by this. I was hit by what felt like light. It's interesting. That's what John says here. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Quite a stunning occurrence for me. That Jesus was that light. And as I got to know him over the time, I started to realise, wow, this is what John's talking about. This is why he puts it there first of all. The very first miracle he has is turning water into wine, is bringing the mundane to life. That's what John's trying to say. That's what Jesus can do for you. He can take a mundane life and he can bring it to life. He can bring light to your life. Jesus says this quite plainly, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the big picture of what John is trying to tell us here about Jesus, that he has come to bring you life and have it to the full. Now, I'm interested in the big picture here, but I'm also interested in the small picture. What's actually happening at the wedding? What's that about? So I'm going to have the small picture. What's happening to the lives of those around Jesus? It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I've said already, this was a bit of a panic moment you know, for them there. It was not a good thing to have run out of wine. It's a terrible thing for a wedding. You've got all these people there. It's interesting that Jesus and his disciples, he's only just got his disciples. So this is a wedding that said, they said, sort of everyone come. It's likely Jesus knew them. It certainly is obvious that Mary knew the people well. Uh, but everyone gets to come. And so probably the whole neighbourhood, society, town, village was there. Really key thing. Really important for the family, isn't it? But there is no wine. That's not good. Really, what this is, is a great embarrassment to the couple, isn't it? What would they lose if they didn't have wine? Well, they would lose a lot of face. It'd be great shame for them. Not a lot more, really, unless someone did sue them. 
which would be scary, I think, wouldn't it? <laughs> you didn't give me enough wine. I'm suing you. Scary thing. But actually what it's about is embarrassment, about social embarrassment. Now in our society, in Western culture, we don't, this, we act like this isn't a big thing. We act like it's not important, like you should just get through social embarrassment. In many other cultures, you'll find that this is actually one of the biggest motivators in their culture. Shame. To avoid shame is actually one of the most important things. Most Asian cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, cultures like that. Actually, you do everything so that you bring honour and not shame. Absolutely key. So what we have here in a Middle Eastern environment is a crisis. Truth be known, it is a small crisis, but it is a crisis. What I love about this, though, is that Jesus' first miracle is just to save someone from social embarrassment. That's what it's about, isn't it? His first miracle, you would think your first miracle would be something amazing that would, you know, blow away the crowd and, you know, like, you know, the, the person that's in the wheelchair, or they didn't have wheelchairs back then, I'm sure, but whatever, you know, gets up and walks and, oh, wow, that's amazing, or, you know, some, one of those big things. But it's not. It's because this family, this couple, will be embarrassed and be shamed by the fact that they haven't got any wine. I love that idea. Jesus wants to take away their shame, doesn't he? Now that's not all he does here. I'll look at it. The next bit. It said, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, this is, this, sorry, this is the, uh, the master of ceremonies doing it. He says to the bridegroom, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus doesn't just take away their shame. He does more. He gives honour in place of that shame. That's awesome, isn't it? You know, the master of ceremony is amazed at this couple that they would do such a great thing to bring out the better wine at the end. Did they do anything? No, they didn't really, did they? But they get the honour. I love that. Jesus takes away their shame and gives them honour. Now we're going to be having um, some communion now. I might actually ask if those that are giving it out could come and distribute it because it fits really well, I think, with the end of my sermon here. Um, and this time of communion, thanks guys, is, uh, is a real opportunity for us here to actually meet with Jesus and to see, thank him for this truth that Jesus gives honour instead of shame. He wants to take away your shame and bring you honour. Thanks, guys. This may take a while, mightn't it? Usually does, doesn't it? I can ramble for a little bit. I'll step onto my next slide. We can start talking about that. I might step as I go by. Thank you very much. Does it fit there? Yes.
Today we see a, a wedding feast where things have gone terribly wrong, obviously, and Jesus fixes it up. We also have here, well, it's a crusket, but it's, it represents bread, doesn't it? The bread. Bread is that sign of the giving of life. Jesus equates himself with bread quite often. He says, I am the bread of life. In other words, I'm the one that will sustain you, will give you life that will keep you going. I will sustain you. I love that idea. I know for myself, certainly, I rely upon him for, for sustaining. I know internally, whenever I need it, he's the one I run to. And that's what he's saying here. I am the bread of life. Oops, that didn't go forward. There we go. Bread brings and sustains life. We also have a cup, a little cup in, in our hands. It's meant to be wine. Jesus began with wine. We have some sort of grape juice, I assume, or something like that. And what I love is there's so many parts to that. In communion, we tend to use the wine. Jesus says, take this, this cup, the symbol of my sacrifice. He's looking at the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. We talk about the blood of the lamb, the blood that takes away our sin. This is where Jesus exchanges shame for honour with you. That Jesus died on the cross to take away your shame. I love this verse from Hebrews 12. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Often we don't understand in our culture, but the cross was great shame. For him to be on the cross, up there naked on the cross, was great shame. And yet he said, I will do this because I actually want you to know me. And I want you to have the life and the honour that I give. That's what he's saying in this place. I want to exchange your shame for honour. If you're here today and you have felt a bit of that shame, you're feeling like, oh, actually, you know, there are things in your life that makes you feel like I'm not really worthy, I'm not really good enough, I'm not really able to do it. Jesus says, give those to me, give your troubles to me and I'll bring you honour. I'll lift you up. What I love is the fact that the honour Jesus gives me isn't because I've been amazing and done amazing tricks and great things. It's just because He loves me and He wants to give me honour. How are we? We nearly got a little to go. If you'd like to stand with me. The night before he betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, gave it to disciples and said, this is my body. 
broken for you. Let's eat together. And he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of my sacrifice. Blood spilt for you. Let's drink. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you have come to give life. That you've come to give that abundant life that you spoke about. That you are wine to our water. Lord Jesus, I pray now that you would touch hearts. That you would bless people now. That they would know your life just as I did when I was a 17-year-old, experienced your love. Lord, touch hearts, change lives. If you're here and you don't know him, you haven't experienced him, he's here for you now. You can simply pray, Lord, show yourself to me. And he will do that. For the rest of us, Lord, we pray. Lord, we want to take you in constantly. We want your bread. We want your wine. Lord, bless us that we may be life to those around us as you are life to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.